What kind of temptation do you think it would take to marry you, Carla? <laughs> I mean, people would be paying money to me to, to try to marry me. I'm such a catch. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's show. In some recent past episodes, we explored the Regency era when we talked about Bridgerton, and we just did a show on You've Got Mail where they prominently discussed a book called Pride and Prejudice, and we felt like we needed to bring those all together. So today we're doing the 2005 Pride and Prejudice movie starring Keira Knightley. So I am beyond excited to do this episode today. It is for sure one of my all-time favorite movies. I absolutely love it. I love the book. I've read the book at least three-ish times. I bet you read that every year. (laughs) I'm not Meg Ryan and you've got mail. I do not read that book every year, but I have read it a number of times and I've seen um, the BBC adaptation and I've seen the 2005 adaptation. Um, Fun fact, what other famous movies are based on Jane Austen novels that might surprise you? Do you know? Is there a movie called Emma? (laughs) Okay. So yeah, there's like the straight up adaptations. There's been at least a couple adaptations of Emma. There was the Gwyneth Paltrow one. And then the one with, um, I think her name is like Anya Taylor-Joy or something like that. The girl from uh, Queen's Gambit. Um, And yeah, there's like straight up adaptations. I mean, all of Jane Austen's books have been adapted into movies. Can Oh, before I get to the fun movies... Can you name all of Jane Austen's six books that she published during her life? I'm going to say no. <laughs> uh, Give it a shot. I bet you can get. I bet you can get three. You've already got two. Yeah. So there's Pride and Prejudice, Emma, mm-hmm. Sense and Sensibility. Correct. Those are the big three. Can you go beyond that? Is there like a Mansfield Park? Yeah, that is correct. That's number four. Northanger Abbey. Oh, I'm so proud of you right now. This is a really good moment for me. That is correct. We're up to five. I, I'm at a loss. So the other two that you're missing are Persuasion and... Wait. I said five. Six. Yeah, that was six. Persuasion? Yeah. So you're just missing okay. Persuasion. That's respectable. That's totally respectable. Five right. out of six ain't bad. Yeah, no, no judgment over here. All right. I mean... We're doing an episode on Pride and Prejudice, so you had one to start with. I focused on Keira Knightley and not Jane Austen. Sorry. (laughs) Keira Knightley is pretty great. I will say Elizabeth Bennet is not supposed to be that hot. Like, she's supposed to be, you know, pleasing to look at, but it's her personality and her charm and her wit that win her over to Mr. Darcy. So she's not supposed to look like Keira Knightley, but I loved Keira Knightley in this movie. I thought she did a fantastic job of portraying Lizzie. So I'll give her a pass for being so hot. Well, I mean, so there's Rosamund Pike and Carrie Mulligan. So, I mean, there's a bunch of hot sisters in that family. Yeah, lots and lots of hot sisters. It's hard to decide which one of them is the hottest. They're some pretty good looking gals. Yeah. Which one is supposed to be the most beautiful? Uh, Rosamund Pike, Jane, who's from Gone Girl. Well, I read that Keira Knightley was selected, like the, the director was a little bit nervous about including her in the movie because she's such a beautiful woman. Um, but that she was kind of like a tomboy and some of her other quirks and, and characteristics and some of her other roles made him feel like she could pull it off. And at the same time, I think he really liked Matthew McFadden, the guy who plays Mr. Darcy. 
Uh, you might know him from Succession. Uh, he was totally unknown outside of the UK before this, and I think he needed some star power to pull off the movie. Yeah, so Matthew McFadden is so, so wonderful as Mr. Darcy. I completely fall in love with him every time I watch the movie. But it has kind of been tainted for me now that we've watched the TV show Succession, where the same actor plays like an epic, epic asshole. So now when I go back and watch Pride and Prejudice, I'm just like, oh yeah, there's Tom, the jerk from Succession. You, you picture him having a human footstool as Mr. Darcy? A little bit. And I try so hard to put it out of my brain, but he's so good in the role in Succession. Like he's memorable. It sticks with you. So you're, you're, before you gave me some trivia, you're going to talk about other like spinoffs of Jane Austen works that were yes. interesting. I feel like I've known, I've heard a piece of trivia before about Emma being some other famous movie being based on Emma. Am I supposed to guess? That movie is, drumroll please, Clueless with Alicia Silverstone yeah. from like the 90s. Um, yeah, it's, it is like a pretty true adaptation. I mean, it's obviously set in modern day America or 90s America. I guess that's not so modern anymore. But um, yeah, it's other than that, like the plot stays pretty true to the book of Emma. And then the other fun one that I was going to talk about is Bridget Jones's Diary, which is also based on Pride and Prejudice. And Mr. Darcy, there, there is a character named Mark Darcy in the Bridget Jones's Diary movie. He is played by Colin Firth, who played like the actual Mr. Darcy in a true adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that was done by the BBC. I, so, thought, I thought Hugh Grant was in Bridget Jones's Diary. Yeah, he was like the Wickham character. I don't think his name was Wickham, but he was definitely the Wickham character, which is kind of the bad guy of Pride and Prejudice. Well, I don't think we'll be doing any episodes on Bridget Jones's Diary or Clueless anytime soon. <laughs> Two movies I've actually never seen. You've never seen Clueless? How did I not know this about Not you? in its entirety. I've seen wow. like snippets before on TV while rapidly changing the channel away. Okay, okay. Well, we'll see about that. I don't know. Clueless has some good money stuff. I might make you do that. In any event... Today we're focusing on Pride and Prejudice, which is a true adaptation of Jane Austen's novel set in Regency era England. No like modern style adaptation, just a, you know, true to the era take on the book. So general impressions, did you like the movie? I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's a little long for my taste. It's a full two hours, right? It is, I think it's actually two hours and 12 minutes, if my memory serves correctly. Yeah, I mean, I could have done with a little bit less of the, a lot of it. <laughs> I thought it was just so charming from start to finish. And I actually watched a, a short documentary about the making of the movie. And all of the actors were talking about just how incredibly wonderful of an experience it was to shoot the film. That they were all just having such a, a lovely time. They all got along so well. And it's, you know, set in the most beautiful place. I think they did shoot it on location in England. And it's just these rolling, lovely hills. And everything about it just warms my heart completely and thoroughly. The music is especially beautiful. And I'm going to try to play for you guys a rendition of the classic theme song from the movie, which is just stunningly beautiful. So stick around for that at the end of the episode. Well, I did appreciate Judy Dench's performance, and I'm a big Donald Sutherland fan, Kiefer's father, for those of you who don't know him. <laughs> yeah, they both have wonderful roles in this movie. It's It really is a pretty stellar cast. So, should we do a brief plot summary for those who are not like Meg Ryan's character and you've got mail and haven't read 
Pride and Prejudice super recently? I think that would be wise. Okay. So we're not going to get too deep in the weeds because it's actually kind of a complicated plot. But the basic gist that you need to know for pennies and popcorn today is that the main focus of the story is the Bennett family. You've got Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, and they have five young daughters, which is kind of a problem for them because the estate that pays them an income um, is not allowed to pass to any female heirs. It has to go to a male heir, and they don't have any of those lying around. So the estate is going to pass to the closest male heir, which is a cousin of theirs. So basically all that means is that there's a lot of pressure on these five young girls to marry pretty well because they're not going to get any kind of inheritance. So they are really, really anxious to make a good match. That's pretty much all you need to know, I think, for today's purposes. So I guess with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into our first clip. This is taking place at a ball and all of the Bennett daughters are there and they see these two gentlemen and lady walking in together and they just have like a very fine appearance about them. So the room kind of quiets down and everyone turns to look at them and see who they are. And we're going to be listening to a conversation between Lizzie Bennett, who is the heroine of Pride and Prejudice, and her friend Charlotte as they kind of gossip about these people who've just walked in. And before you start this clip, Carla, let me apologize to all of you out there. I feel like these clips are impossible to understand. They're speaking in like British English or something like that. So one, that makes it a little <laughs> bit harder for many people to follow. And two, everything in the movie seems to have something else going on in the background, whether it's a horse galloping or music playing or, you know, cross chatter from another conversation. I feel like it's really hard to hear. So our apologies. Here we go. So which of the painted peacocks is our Mr. Bingley? Well, he's on the right, and on the left is his sister. And the person with the quizzical brow? That is his good friend, Mr. Darcy. It's <gasps> miserable, poor sir. Miserable he may be, but poor he most certainly is not. Tell me. 10,000 a year, and he owns half of Derbyshire. The miserable half. <laughs> so he's worth 10,000 pounds a year. Uh, what, what is that today? It's really difficult to put an exact number on what that would translate to today. There are a lot of different takes on what the right approach is to translating wealth from Regency era England to today. So the estimates vary a lot. The lowest one that I saw was roughly $800,000 in modern day America, going all the way up to $16 million in modern day America which I know is an insanely huge spread. Both of them would make you superbly wealthy in today's world, but obviously 16 million is gonna make you crazy wealthy, whereas 800,000 will make you just normal wealthy, I guess. I, if I'm trying to guess at it, it's probably closer to that upper end range. It's somebody who really has a surplus of funds and is, is orders of magnitude, you know, multiple standard deviations away from the, the mean income. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And I think a lot of what that discrepancy comes down to is that we're talking about true disposable income and purchasing power because a lot of the Darcy's expenses would have been covered. They already own this incredible mansion where they live. They're not paying a mortgage on it. They didn't have utility bills. They didn't have to pay for like 
gasoline, I guess I had to pay for feed for the horses, which was maybe kind of equivalent, but there were a lot of expenses that we have in modern day life that they just didn't have back then. So I think when we see those higher estimates, they're trying to think of how much disposable income would they really have in today's world. So I think you tend to be right. Somewhere between the two probably lies a more accurate number, but I think it's going to be on the higher end of the spectrum. Poor Mr. Darcy, right? That's what the clip says, but he's not so poor. He has all this money. When I heard this, it made me think of that that study that I think has been tossed around a bunch, the $75,000 a year income study and the effects of happiness from that. Uh, that was a study done by Angus Deaton and Daniel Kahneman in 2009, and it's been partially debunked. I think Matthew Killingsworth did a study that that really partially debunked it because there's a few different elements of happiness that they were looking at. And they were looking at reflections on your past happiness. And I think his data was a little bit more relevant. But the synopsis of that story was that once you have your basic needs met, once you earn about $75,000 a year, which in today's inflationary market, everything from 2009 till now is probably more like I don't know, eighty-five dollars or $90,000 a year. But once you earn enough to have your basic needs met, increases in your income don't really translate to increases in your overall happiness. And even though that's been partially debunked, I guess I kind of want to talk about that in Mr. Darcy, right? Yeah. He looks kind of grouchy, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what they're talking about. He owns half of Derbyshire is what they're whispering about in this clip. And... Uh, Lizzie Bennett's response to that is, does he own the miserable half? Because he looks so down in the mouth and just like an unhappy dude. So it it certainly seems like there's not a true correlation between having lots of money and happiness. I tend to think those studies are pretty accurate. There's so many stories of celebrities and politicians, people who have you know, really climbed far up the ladder in life, certainly in terms of financial success. And they are just miserable. You see stories of suicides, you see a lot of drug addictions that people are struggling with. So my take tends to be that I think those happiness studies are about right. Once you have enough to cover your basic needs and give you enough money to have some fun and play around with, I don't think it gets much better than that. So I think one of the findings that that is really true from those studies is that above that $75,000 a year number, the way that bumps in the road, you know, unexpected strife, the way that that affects you is, is definitely, um, it kind of plateaus above 75. When you have, when you're able to swallow some bumps in the road, you don't seem to respond as much to them. It's not like having a whole lot more money makes you a whole lot happier when, something unfortunate happens. Whereas if you have meaningfully less than $75,000 a year in income, when something unfortunate happens, it's a really big deal for you. And that creates a lot of stress and a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's what is really the big driver for folks. When you don't know how you're going to solve all your problems and you don't have enough money to accomplish them, it leads to a lot of heartache and a lot of, you know, a lot of strife just in day-to-day living, which affects your happiness. I think what the studies have recently shown is that your relative wealth is what drives satisfaction, not your absolute wealth. So it's sort of where you stand amongst maybe your peer group or your friends and family and, you know, the people that you're close to, not just the total amount of money that you have. So I actually have an interesting factoid about that when it comes to Kira Knightley, the actress. So I heard an interview with her once where she said that she prefers to live on a pretty small 
quote, salary that she pays herself every year. I mean, this girl makes millions and millions of dollars in every movie that she does, right? She's box office gold. People love her, but she prefers to live on something. This is an old interview, so I'm sure this number has gone up since then, but she said she prefers to live on something in the neighborhood of $50,000 a year, which is kind of insane, right? She could be living it up and going on crazy expensive vacations. And the reason that she gave for wanting to live a more modest lifestyle is that most of her friends are not movie stars and they can't afford to live the same kind of life that she can. So she doesn't want to be living this, you know, completely other existence that would make her feel separate and different from the people that she cares about and is close to. So I always thought, man, what a cool thing to do. And hopefully, you know, she'll give away a good amount of that wealth if she really is living on that small of a percentage of it. I'm sure she treats her friends and family and takes them on nice vacations from time to time. But yeah, for her like normal day-to-day expenses, that's what she tries to aim for, which I think is pretty darn cool. So much like Kira Knightley, the character of Lizzie Bennet is someone who also doesn't put wealth above all else in the world. In fact, I think one of the things that has made her a really enduring heroine and why people keep going back to this book so often after all these years since it was written in the early 1800s is that she is somebody who puts herself and her moral principles and her happiness above material things. She is not somebody who's going to just jump at the first chance to marry whoever she can because she's afraid of falling down the ladder of society and having to to work for a living. So let's take a listen to our Next clip, Lizzie Bennet gets two marriage proposals in the story of Pride and Prejudice, and we are about to hear the first one coming from her very silly, just ridiculous human being cousin named Mr. Collins, and he is uh, giving her a marriage proposal that I would not be super excited to get, so let's take a listen to that. Dear Miss Elizabeth, I'm sure my attentions have been too marked to be mistaken. Almost as soon as I entered the house, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. But before I am run away with my feelings, perhaps I may state my reasons for marrying. Firstly, that it is the duty of a clergyman to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I am convinced it will add greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, that it is at the urging of my esteemed patroness, Lady Catherine, that I select a wife. My object in coming to Longbourn was to choose such a one from among Mr. Bennet's daughters, for I am to inherit the estate, and such an alliance will surely suit everyone. So romantic. This will suit everyone. It'll be fine, honey. Let's get hitched. It'll be satisfactory. (laughs) So the actor who plays Mr. Collins does such a fantastic job. Like That is not the way he normally sounds in other roles. He just completely transformed himself into this ridiculous Mr. Collins. So Lizzie Bennett ends up turning him down after this clip finishes, and Mr. Collins is just aghast at the idea that she's going to say no to him. So he is the cousin who is supposed to inherit the estate, and as he says, like it would be a nice alliance for the person who's inheriting the Bennett estate to marry one of the Bennett daughters, so that when Mr. Bennett passes on, there's kind of a connection there, and Hopefully, Mr. Collins will have more incentive to take care of the other girls if they haven't gotten married. So he makes a valid point. 
it would be a nice thing for them to have some kind of a union. Unfortunately, he is just an extremely unpleasant dude to be around. And Lizzie is, you know, fun and witty and bright. And like, they're just, they're not going to get along with each other. That seems very clear. But it would have been a financially smart decision, I think, for her to make. So what's your take on this? Was it too risky? Do you think she should have accepted his hand in marriage? I don't think it was too risky. Uh, I mean, first of all, she's Keira Knightley. Like, I'm pretty sure she's going to make out okay, right? <laughs> she's gonna not be fine. supposed to be that beautiful. She's just not. But she is. So <laughs> there you go. Um, I think it was not that risky. It seemed as though she had a lot to offer. Um, she seemed likable in just about all facets. And multiple people seemed interested in her throughout the course of the movie. It may be risky in the sense that her siblings seem less willing to go be a spinster and have, you know, the, the risk of being single and an old maid and having to go step out of society and do something that is perceived to be lower class. But it's not her job to go protect for them, right? I mean, they have their own opportunities for people to to choose them and select them as a spouse. And it's not her responsibility to go take care of that. So I think she totally did the right thing. She doesn't need to pick her weirdo cousin. That's whatever. Yeah, I certainly agree. There's no need to confine oneself to a life of misery just to give your sisters a chance at like having a pretty meager income. I mean, Mr. Collins, like he's the estate that he's inheriting. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but the Bennett estate is, is good. It's, it's pretty solid, but who knows how much of a spender Mr. Collins is going to be like how much he will be willing to spin off and give to the sisters. So I suspect he's not a crazy spender. I mean, he's a member of the clergy. He's got Lady Catherine telling him what to do. Yeah, but he also seems so obsessed with Lady Catherine and her wealth. I don't know. He might be a closet spender if he just doesn't have the opportunity to do it right now. So here's a question. Who's Lady Catherine's husband? Uh, Unclear. How does she have this like fancy house? If the Bennett sisters can't inherit anything, like how did she get this? I think it's just differences in the in the estate encumbrances. Also, I mean, maybe the husband is there and we just don't see him in the movie or the film or the book. Seems like a plot hole. <laughs> so I also wanted to take this clip to talk about another aspect of the Bennett's finances that is not prominently featured in most adaptations it's not prominently featured in the book even but mr bennett at some point in the book it says i'm going to actually read you an excerpt from it mr bennett had very often wished that instead of spending his whole income he had laid by an annual sum for the better provision of his children and of his wife if she survived him So he knows the situation that he's put his daughters in. He knows that it's either marry or work as a governess or in a dress shop or something. And he regrets it. And I think the way that it's kind of explained in the book is that they just always thought they would have a son and that that son would inherit the estate and then he would be willing to go on and like take care of his sisters. Whereas they don't have that faith in Mr. Collins that he's going to continue on and do that. So they were just banking on this future thing happening of, oh, it's fine, we'll have a son someday. 
and then they spit out five kids and every single one of them turns out to be a girl, which is not, you know, horribly statistically unlikely, right? So I think that is such an important lesson to take away from this and something that just gets too often overlooked when people discuss this book is that the Bennets are actually doing pretty well. They've got a pretty solid income coming in. Their income, I think, is supposed to be about 2,000 pounds a year, which would roughly translate to roughly like 200-ish thousand a year in modern dollars. I mean, it, it seems like it should be 20% of whatever Mr. Darcy's is. Yeah, which is a lot, as we've talked about, somewhere between $800,000 and like $16 million, depending on purchasing power, that you factor, factors that you take into account there. But... Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of money that's coming in the door for them, right? So they've just been spending frivolously and not putting any money aside, which is something that so many Americans do to themselves. So if you are in that situation, you I mean, these are the kinds of things that can happen to you, right? All sorts of disasters can befall one's family. In this case, it's the quote-unquote disaster of having five daughters, but... I mean, real disasters can happen to people and having set money aside on an annual basis like Mr. Bennett is wishing fiercely that he had done can really help put a cushion under you for those kinds of disasters. Yeah, I totally agree. Look, we need to, you don't know what the future is going to hold and it's easy to be regretful about your wasteful purchases and and things that didn't buy you long-term satisfaction and happiness. So I highly recommend living more like Kira Knightley, apparently, so that you don't get yourself into that kind of uncomfortable situation. Yeah, she sounds like she's pretty well protected for all kinds of life disasters. I think we can go ahead and move on to our next clip, which deals with the subplot of one of Lizzie's sisters, the dreadful Lydia, and this horrible situation that she gets herself into. She has run off with Mr. Wickham, who, as we've mentioned, is kind of the villain of the novel, and horror of horrors, they have like spent the night together, whatever that means. Not not clear if they actually had sex or not, but they've like gone off together without the intention of getting married. And that is that is just not done. No chaperone? No chaperone. I mean, this is Whoa. serious stuff. I will say it actually does feel kind of serious to me because this girl is 15 and he's like in his mid 20s. So this is basically like a kidnapping situation. But from their eyes, it was perfectly fine for them to get married. It just was not okay for them to sleep together without getting married. I mean, 15, that's past prime breeding season, right? Pretty much. I mean, basically an old maid at 15. So Lydia has gotten herself into this dangerous situation. And the thing I think is so crazy about it is apparently it doesn't just put Lydia's reputation in peril. It puts the whole family's reputation in peril. So like the rest of the sisters who need to marry someone in order to avoid having to work for a living, they are have, going to have a really hard time doing that with this evil sister who's having sex outside of wedlock. Maybe, not even clear, but the fact that she could have done it is enough to ruin the prospect of marriage for any of her sisters. So there is a lot of hubbub about what is going to be done, what can they do to convince Wickham to marry Lydia, because that is the only possible solution to this problem. So let's listen to this clip where they are fretting about all of this. We can't just let her! 
Let me catch my breath. It's in uncle's writing. Who's found them? They're married. I can't make out a sketch. Oh, They're married. They will be if, if father will settle a hundred pounds a year on her. That is Wickham's condition. hundred pounds? He will agree to this, father. Yes, I'll agree. God knows how much your uncle must have made on that wretched man. What do you mean, father? No man in his senses would marry Lydia under so slight a temptation as a hundred a year. Your uncle must have been very generous. What kind of temptation do you think it would take to marry you, Carla? <laughs> I mean, people would be paying money to me to, to try to marry me. I'm such a catch. Which actually is a thing. There's something called bride price where you pay to marry a woman. That is That is a thing in some cultures. But in this culture, they have the opposite. They have this thing called dowries, which I think probably most people are familiar with this, although it's a very outdated concept in America. So a dowry is an amount that the bride's family pays to the groom to induce him into marrying her. Basically, it's like, well, you're taking on this terrible burden of marrying this woman. So to, you know, give you a little incentive to do it, we're going to pay you money. Here's two goats and a bushel of corn. Pretty much. Pretty much. So they're talking about 100 pounds a year. Again, to translate that, we're talking about roughly like 800 eight thousand dollars a year which you know that's nothing to sneeze at but it's Car- not carla i would marry you for eight thousand dollars a year oh thanks sweetie i appreciate that so yeah eight thousand isn't nothing but it's definitely not a crazy huge sum of money like we've been talking about you know the other the incomes that these people have coming in they should be able to afford that so do you think dowries are still a thing today Man, um, I mean, it, surely they exist somewhere, but I would think they're just mostly done away with, right? Like in like in the Western world, almost never in other places, maybe a little bit. So they're still startlingly common. So they are probably most common in India, which is obviously a huge country. They were actually outlawed there in the early 1960s but that hasn't stopped them. They are still going on left and right. They're just, I mean, you can't outlaw someone giving a gift to another person, right? So they basically just call it like a wedding gift. And they do, usually it's not cash anymore. It's often like buying them a house, buying them cars, um, you know, agreeing to like sneak them some money under the table every year, kind of like this hundred pounds going to Wickham that we hear about in the clip still happening. I can tell you from personal experience, I volunteered at a military base that had like 50,000 Afghan refugees back in September of 2021. And I talked to a lot of folks who um, had to have their marriage certificates to prove their relationship to a spouse. And on the marriage certificates, they have a list of like items that were given from one from the bride's family to the groom's family as part of a dowry. Like it's so, it's a formal documented thing with a government. Yeah. Oh Damn. yeah. So definitely still going on in Afghanistan. I can tell you that for sure because I just saw it with my own eyes. Any idea what kind of stuff? Oh, it varied a lot. I mean, some of it was just straight up money. Some of it was material goods. Um, I mean, we watched that uh, Indian matchmaking show together that was on Netflix like a year or so ago. 
and they it seemed like it was going on above board there right they were talking about like all these really expensive clothes and jewelry that were often being handed off um, from one family to another so yeah i think this kind of stuff is still going on if you google this you will see a ton of information about dowries it's still happening in a lot of middle eastern countries india being another major asian countries um and quite a few african countries as well i I imagine this is not particularly great for women uh not at all it is a terrible practice when it comes to how it translates to the treatment of women in day-to-day life so it leads to a number of infanticides because when a girl comes out that's like oh we're gonna have to pay to have someone take her off our hands someday and just straight up killing babies that is a thing that happens um it leads to girls not getting nearly as much education because they want to save that money to put it towards a dowry and not waste it on education yeah what's what's that gonna be useful for also i've seen there are some studies that conclude that the dowry price actually becomes more expensive if the woman is more educated because i guess the men just don't want to put up with a wife who's like got some learning under her belt. For real. That's right. That's yeah. the way to play it. Uh-huh. You just need like a little submissive mouse living in your life who makes you dinner apparently. So that is another reason that it puts like some downward pressure on women getting educated. It's just a terrible, terrible practice that makes women seem like commodities and not human beings who people might enjoy choosing to spend their life with. So yeah, it has a lot of dreadful consequences for women and is a pretty awful practice that should be stopped everywhere. I agree. Yeah, that sounds pretty terrible. I had no idea that that was so common in the world today. So Elizabeth Bennett, she got proposed to by Mr. Collins and it was weird and uncomfortable. But as you said, that's not the only proposal she gets in the movie slash book. She gets one for Mr. Darcy too, which is also not great. Miss Elizabeth, I have struggled in vain and I can bear it no longer. These past months have been a torment. I came to Rosings with the single object of seeing you. I had to see you. I have fought against my better judgment, my family's expectation, the inferiority of your birth, my rank and circumstance, all these things, and I'm willing to put them aside and ask you to end my agony. I don't understand. I love you. Most ardently. Please do me the honor of accepting my hand. Okay, so this is like, seems like it's going to be a romantic moment. They're in the rain, he's proposing marriage, and then he ruins it by speaking. I mean, listen to the things that he says. I have struggled to fight this feeling. I'm doing this against my better judgment. I'm setting aside the inferiority of your birth and your circumstances. What a proposal. Poor Lizzie Bennet. She's just racking up these dreadful proposals left and right. Wait, wait, wait. This seems way better than the Mr. Collins proposal. At least he's (laughs) like, but I love you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Mr. Collins did not say that. He's basically saying, look, society will frown on this match. However, society be damned. I really like you. Yeah. Be my girl. I suppose. I mean, he worded it a little poorly, but that's really (laughs) what he's trying to say. Well, I think you're right. And obviously, this is like a 200-year spoiler alert, but they do get together. Yeah. Is there a third proposal at the end? Well, sort of. He says, my wishes have not changed. So that's that's how he does it. Third. So he, he still wants to marry her despite her inferiority? <laughs> yeah. So it's not a great proposal. 
and he's basically just throwing at her that she's poor and he's willing to set that aside, which doesn't seem awesome, right? Uh, yeah, it seems pretty ridiculous. But like I said, still better than Mr. Collins. Still better than that weirdo, col- the weirdo cousin. What this makes me think about, though, is the pressure from super wealthy people to... Did they feel pressure to marry into upper crust families? I know we were talking about this before. Um, we'll we'll jump to everyone's favorite Spin Doctor song and talk about two princes, right? The, <laughs> the Harry and William and, and maybe their experiences. Is that like the closest analog we have today to some really wealthy, well-to-do people who might feel some special pressure on, on who to marry? Yeah, there's certainly the most famous example of it that we have like intimate knowledge of because everything these people do is splashed all over tabloids. But I think it's a useful thing to look at because I think it probably demonstrates that this same kind of pressure that Mr. Darcy feels has not gone away. If you are a wealthy person, like super, super ultra wealthy, you probably do feel some pressure to marry someone like of a certain class in society. And, you know, Mr. Darcy, I think, feels a lot of pressure to keep this huge family estate going. And one of the main ways to do that back then was to marry somebody else who could provide like an infusion of cash to keep the estate growing and doing well over time. So he's completely throwing away his chance at doing that by picking Lizzie. So I think his he's choosing a terrible time to voice these concerns and he's basically just insulting her left and right, and she she does end up rejecting this proposal for those very reasons. But he does have some kind of a point, I think, in saying, I've got social responsibilities, my family's counting on me, and I'm blowing one of my chances at living up to those obligations. So I, I think people like Prince William and Prince Harry probably felt feel a lot of that same kind of pressure. So for people like me who before this episode couldn't remember the names of these princes, <laughs> uh, like why don't you refresh us on who they chose to marry and, and did they pluck someone from royalty in another country or what they do? Prince William and Prince Harry are the sons of Princess Diana and Prince Charles. So they are British royalty and Prince William married Kate Middleton, who was from a reasonably well-to-do family in England, but definitely not royalty. Kate Middleton's parents made their wealth, which I think wasn't astronomical, but, you know, solid, by running a party supply store. It's basically Party City, but I think, like, (laughs) a little bit fancier, but more or less Party City. That sounds like it was scandalous, right? I mean, she didn't come from really upper-crust society, and he... Unlike Harry, Prince William is, what, like second in line to the throne, right? Prince Charles and then him? I think that's right. So it was pretty important that he marry someone that was like, you know, good enough for the family because this person could genuinely be queen someday. In fact, it's probably likely that she will be queen someday, right? So it was important to the family. And yeah, I think it was kind of a scandal at the time that he wasn't picking someone else of royalty or someone from like an uber, uber wealthy, successful family. I mean, these were party city folks. So I think, you know, everyone has been proven wrong. Kate Middleton seems very lovely and they seem to have a happy life together. What about Harry? 
So he's the one who's pulled away from the public eye or something like that? Mm -hmm. So Harry married Meghan Markle, who is an actress. I think she was on the TV show Suits, which we never watched, but I think was pretty wildly popular. It seemed like it was doing great. And they fell in love. She left behind her acting career to go be a princess and just got a terrible reaction from British society. Tragically, I think a lot of the blowback that she got is because she is half black. It's been really awful that she did not get that same kind of welcome that Kate Middleton had. Even though that welcome wasn't so great to begin with, Meghan Markle, I think, was like, a step down in everyone's well, eyes. Well, yeah, I mean, she wasn't from at least she wasn't from a wealthy family. She was just a, a mini celebrity, like a D-list actress or something. I don't know. I don't know how good of an actress she really was, but not not somebody super famous. Yeah. So I think it's tragic that there are people in the world today who still feel pressure to marry someone from a certain society or with a certain income. But I do not think that has gone away. That is not something that died with Regency-era England. It's still very much alive. Our final clip is dealing with a little bit of the awkwardness that exists between Lizzie and Mr. Darcy after she rejects this marriage proposal in the rain that we just heard. So Lizzie is kind of in a down mindset after things did not go well with Mr. Darcy and she has taken a trip with her aunt and uncle to kind of take her mind off things. They're just traveling through the countryside. And they just happen to be near Pemberley House, which is where Mr. Darcy resides. So let's listen to the conversation between Lizzie and her aunt and uncle. Where exactly are we? I think we're quite close to Pemberley. Mr. Darcy's home. That's the fellow. Very well stocked lake. I have a hankering to see it. Oh, no, let's not. Oh, he's so... I'd rather not. He's so... He's so... So what? He's so rich. By heavens, Lizzie, what a snob you are. Objecting to poor Mr Darcy because of his wealth. The poor man can't help it. He won't be there anyway. These great men are never at home. So, reverse snobbery here. This is crazy, right? She's like... He's he's just so rich. Uh. <laughs> and I do think the aunt and uncle's responsive. He, he can't help it, the poor guy. He just <laughs> he just has all this money. What is he supposed to do? Well, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to say. Obviously, being rich is a quote problem that you can solve pretty quickly, right? If you want to give away all your wealth, you certainly could. But I think that sort of thing was just unheard of in that era. So I think maybe we'll do an episode one day on Brewster's Millions, which is a classic movie about somebody trying to give away a bunch of wealth. Yeah. It's maybe, not so easy. Maybe not as easy as it sounds. Although I think in, I actually haven't seen this movie, but I, you made me watch the trailer and there's like all these weird rules on how he can and can't spend it. It's true. If you don't have all those rules, you can just write a freaking check and be done with it. and <laughs> That will solve your problem. So yes, it's obviously something that he could quote, help if he wanted to. But again, through the lens of Regency or England, that just wasn't even something anyone would consider. So do you think that kind of reverse snobbery, like looking down on this guy because of all of his wealth exists in the world today? I 
do for sure. I mean, take someone like Jeff Bezos, the Amazon guy, right? There are so many stories of Amazon workers facing really difficult conditions, being made to work inhumane hours, and Jeff Bezos is super wealthy. Like, he's the guy in charge of everything at Amazon. He has the power to put a stop to these things if he wants to, but he doesn't because it makes him super, super wealthy, so he has no incentive to do that. And I think there's a lot of people who think they are morally superior to people like that, that there really is no moral way to get uber wealthy like that. And if you've done it, you must be a bad person. Yeah, I do think there is sort of a movement that if you're if you're rich, you've done it by exploiting other people, which I think is is really just wrong minded. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I think there are plenty of people who think they're, you know, snobbery is really about thinking you're better than somebody else for reasons that maybe aren't very reasonable or true. And I think there are a lot of people who think they're better than super wealthy folks um, based on their understanding of their morality or the way they behave. I think there is a kernel of truth to that idea. Some of the wealthiest people in the world did get there by kind of questionable means. And I understand people looking at that and thinking that's just not a healthy thing for society to have people with that much money, especially given the way that they went about accumulating it. But obviously snobbery of any kind is never good. You never want to look down on a human being if without knowing for certain that they've done something awful, morally bereft, that would make you think, okay, that's not a great person. So I do think we have to be careful with snobbery. I think in the financial independence community that we're part of here in Longmont, there's a little bit of that attitude of people kind of looking down on spending in a lavish way, right? Because the financial independence movement is all about being frugal and saving up to where you can reach a point of making work optional for you. And for the vast majority of people, you cannot get to that point without being pretty careful with how you spend your money. So there's often some judgment of people who do spend more lavishly. So I think that's another great example of kind of reverse snobbery that we see in our little corner of the world. Yeah, I think you're totally right. If we drove up in some fancy car, I think we'd get some judgmental looks um, from, from a lot of folks. Yeah, which again, isn't great. I mean, I tend to agree that spending money on a super expensive car is not a great use of Carla is the leader of this reverse snobbery crowd. That's what we're learning. <laughs> I mean, I sympathize with it. I'll say that, or at least a lot of aspects of it. I am not into cars. I just think cars are kind of a silly thing to spend lots and lots of money on. They're useful. They're great. We have one. We like it. But I would be really frustrated if you wanted to spend a ton of money on some really nice luxury vehicle because we just don't need it. But that is because you and I do not value cars. We're just not car people. And I do understand people wanting to spend money on the things that really do matter to them. And if cars are that for you, then I say, great, you do you. What about like second and third homes. The aunt makes some comment about, oh, great men are never there because <laughs> Mr. Darcy likely has multiple residences. What, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's the other really fun thing to talk about from this clip. So these great men are never at home. We see the Pemberley estate in the film and it is to die for. It is just this enormous, beautiful, 
just crazy, crazy mansion, like, like Downton Abbey style sort of thing. And it just seems insane that someone would have a home like that where you could probably like spend every night in a different room of the house and not run out of rooms for like a solid month. And yet you're never there. You're never enjoying that incredible place that you have. And I think that's, again, pretty common today still, right? When you think of someone like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, they probably aren't at home that much. They travel a lot for their jobs and they probably have incredible mansions that they think of as their primary residence, but they travel for fun. They travel for work. They're all over the place all the time and they're never home to enjoy their fabulous mansions. So I don't know. It seems kind of like a bummer to me, just a waste of resources that you've got these gorgeous houses that are sitting there. But I think for the average Joe, the more interesting question is second homes, vacation homes, because that's something that, you know, a decent chunk of Americans have the capacity to consider doing. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of a second home unless you actually live there. So our next door neighbors... They have a home in, I think, Long Beach and a home in Longmont, and they go back and forth between them at different times of the year. They decide where they want to be at different seasons, and they're here for an extended time period. But I think a lot of people get second homes that are like a vacation that they go to quarterly, that they they go to pretty infrequently, and when they're there, they don't stay for very long. I think you have to be really careful about that. It could be a really big investment in your in your time and of your money when we live in a world today where there are a lot of alternatives. Like you can go rent stuff. You can go rent stuff at at the very low end of the spectrum to an extremely high end of the spectrum and get almost whatever you're looking for. And so I kind of wonder why people choose to go that route in today's world as often as they do. So 11% of primary homeowners have a second home. That many? Yeah, I was really surprised by that as well. And I very much agree with you. I think second homes are often a terrible investment. And a lot of people do think of them as investments, right? They're hoping to rent them out for a significant portion of the year and then just use them for some small portion of the year when they're able to take vacations. So I just wanted to quickly run through a few factors that I think people should consider if they are thinking about going that route because holy cow, it just does not make that much sense in my mind. So the first thing to think about is how much time you can actually spend there. So the average American has four weeks of vacation a year. I'm going to guess that the average American who can afford a second home gets more vacation than that. I don't know. I'd be surprised. I mean, I used to work at a job that paid me pretty darn well and I couldn't take even so much as a few days of vacation for most of my career. So uh, that, that feels pretty true to me. Right. Maybe as you work your way like really high up and you get older and older, you can afford time-wise like to be away from your job for that long, um, setting finances aside. But I don't know. I think it's pretty tough to do. So if we're thinking that you get that little vacation time a year, you have to think that most people are spending some chunk of that seeing family, maybe taking time at Christmas. So you're probably not using that vacation home for all of your four weeks of vacation, right? You're probably talking maybe two, three weeks instead at the most, 
are you really going to invest in a whole second house for someone that you're going to spend two to three weeks? The other thing to think about is, is that really what you want to do with your precious limited vacation time every single year? I think we see this with timeshares, right? People get, they get hooked into doing it. They go on the free vacation wherever they get, and they decide to go invest in a timeshare. And many of them have you go to the same place. Every right? single time. And there are a lot of people who just get kind of tired of it and realize, what have I done years later? Yeah. I mean, people generally enjoy seeing different places, trying different things, experiencing different cultures. You are effectively shutting yourself off from all of that if you're putting all your vacation eggs in one basket with a second home. I also think you need to talk about the average length that people expect to own a second vacation home is like seven years, which is crazy, right? When you think about all the transaction costs that go into purchasing the home and then selling it on the other end, seven years is just not enough time to make all of those mini transaction costs worth it. Another factor to consider is risk factors that are very likely in the kinds of spots where people tend to buy vacation homes. So beaches, you're looking at flooding and hurricanes, right? Ski resorts, you're looking at potentially wildfires in the summer. And with all the climate change craziness that's happening, there's a pretty good chance that your ski resort is going to be bone dry in the winter and there's not going to be any snow there for people to go skiing on. Um, if you're in the mountains, not in a ski resort, you've got risks of wildfires I mean, basically all the places that people really want to go have some kind of risk associated with them, which could completely wipe out a huge chunk of your rental income that you're expecting to recoup for the year to make your investment worth it. So there are a lot of factors to consider if you are wanting to jump into this second home market. There's just a lot of things in play and you need to run a lot of numbers and really be sure that it's gonna be worth it and that you are emotionally okay with investing so much of your time and energy into one particular location. If you're someone who likes to travel around and see lots of different things, a vacation home is a terrible idea for you. Agreed. Well, I believe that's all we have for you today on Pride and Prejudice. I guess my advice to everyone here is if you are thinking about proposing, Maybe look for better examples in film than what we see for Mr. Collins and Mr. Darcy. Yeah, this is against my better judgment is not a great thing to include in a proposal. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that in mind, thanks so much for tuning in today, guys, and we'll catch you next time. Take care.